Please pray with me. Almighty Father, we praise you because of your great faithfulness. You are a powerful and ever-present God, our strong tower, our sure provision. We lack nothing when we rely completely on you. May we do that right now. Humble our hearts to receive all that you have to give us through this passage of scripture. Holy God, fill our minds and our hearts with your thoughts as we come to you to receive your word. Strengthen us inwardly. Illuminate our souls that we might see and know the truth in all its power. Let the precious words of 1 Peter chapter 5 come to life within us and cause our souls to be blessed and filled with great peace, hope, and joy. This I ask as your humble servant, in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Have you ever faced the reality of your own death? Are you prepared to die? We live in a culture that shuns death. We tend to isolate ourselves from the sick and dying, just in case it's contagious. We often ignore our own mortality until tragedy strikes close to home. Death was thought of very differently for some people in the 1700s. John Wesley, a prominent theologian at that time, meditated upon death through a practice called Ars Moriendi, or the art of dying. Wesley's influence in this art was so successful that the people of his day were known for experiencing good deaths. A physician who treated many of them once claimed, most people die for fear of dying, but I have never met with such people as yours. There are none of them afraid of death, but are calm and patient and resigned to the last. Is that how you face death? With the grace and assurance of God calming your spirit? Maybe you've never thought about how you would face death. To you, Wesley would ask, do you never think about death? Why do you not? Are you never to die? Nay, it is appointed for all men to die. And what comes after? Only heaven or hell. Will the not thinking of death put it off farther? No, not a day, not one hour. The people that Wesley pastored knew the secret to dying well is in living well. They kept the end in view, and that, that end is eternal glory. They remembered that life is a precious gift of grace from God, a gift not to be squandered on worldly pursuits. For believers, a good death is the culmination of a life lived for the glory of God, no matter what the length of that life may be. For believers, a good death translates into their own glory. These truths, as well as the same gifts and graces that enabled Wesley and the Christians of his day to lead victorious lives and die triumphant deaths, are still ours as believers. 
They also help us to suffer well. Peter has shown us that God's grace is always sufficient, even when our suffering makes it seem otherwise. In the last chapter of 1 Peter, he shows us that the hope of eternal glory impacts a believer's earthly living. That is the truth revealed in our two divisions, humble willingness and hopeful watchfulness. Our first division is humble willingness, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Please open your Bibles and follow along with me. Peter closes his letter with a few final exhortations. Verses 1 through 3. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Peter first identifies himself as a fellow elder. He was one of them, even though he had personally walked with Jesus. What humility had developed in this formerly proud, no-filter fellow. Though Peter was clearly a prominent disciple among the original 12 disciples, he claimed no special privilege or position. Here, he is simply a fellow elder. Yet, he set an example for them that was worth imitating. Despite great suffering, Peter held on to the hope of eternal glory, and it profoundly impacted how he lived on this earth. He knew that like them, he would one day be a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. Because that is true, Peter teaches that God calls his church leaders to serve or to shepherd his flock and to do so willingly, eagerly, and responsibly as good examples of godliness. This is a high calling that is often difficult. We need to pray for our church leaders. One day, though, they will be rewarded for their humble service. Look at verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The title Chief Shepherd refers to Jesus Christ, who is the Good Shepherd. In the Gospel, according to John, Jesus uses seven I am statements to declare the truth about his deity or his godness. In John chapter 10, he says, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. As the chief and good shepherd, Jesus sets the example for church leaders. He shepherded his flock, God's people, 
and he did so willingly, eagerly, and responsively. He perfectly obeyed every one of his father's commands and perfectly fulfilled every detail of his father's will. Because he did, he accomplished his father's plan of redemption and is now exalted in heaven, enthroned on high and resplendent in glory. He is the one who is coming back, and when he does, he will reward his faithful shepherds. He promises to crown faithful believers with the unfading crown of glory. Of this crown, R.C. Sproul says that though we do not earn our salvation, this verse shows that God's faithful servants can expect a reward. When we, whether or not we are ordained elders, faithfully care for those under our authority, we can expect to receive an unfading crown of glory. Yet even this reward is from God's grace, since none of us will ever perfectly shepherd the flock entrusted to him. And in the end, this reward will be for God's glory, for one day we will cast these crowns at the foot of his throne in worship. The crown of glory is but one part of the imperishable inheritance of the saints. By grace, believers are God's adopted children and are therefore legal heirs of his inheritance. 1 Peter 1.4 says that it is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. Peter says this unfading crown of glory will be revealed at the last day and will come with the returning chief shepherd who is none other than the reigning Christ. What motivation for his under-shepherds to faithfully serve God to his glory. In verses 5 through 6, Peter urges his readers to cultivate humility. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. God calls all believers to clothe themselves in humility. When Peter speaks of those who are younger being subject to the elders, he is speaking of those who are younger or less mature in the faith. As they humble themselves, they will be led and taught by those who are mature in the faith. This is God's ordained way for believers to grow up in the faith. This is God's ordained way for believers to advance toward glory. The verb translated as clothe suggests tying on a servant's apron. Peter was recalling the towel that Jesus wrapped around his waist to serve his disciples by washing their feet. He embodies the humility his followers must put on. 
This requires us to grasp the reality of God's grace toward us. Edmund Clowney says that Christian humility is realism that recognizes grace. When you and I fully understand or grasp the unmerited, unearned favor God has bestowed on us, it humbles us. Apart from God's grace, we are lost, damned sinners. Apart from God's grace, we are nothing in his kingdom, and we can do nothing for his kingdom. Clowney continues saying that Christians know that they did not make themselves or save themselves. Our humility springs from our total dependence on the grace of God. Added to that is the calling and example of our Savior, who had everything to boast of, but humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The humility that serves others is found at the throne of God's grace. Peter continues by contrasting the proud with the humble. He borrows from the wisdom of Proverbs 3.34 when he says God opposes those who remain proud while his all-sufficient grace is poured out on all who are humble. Peter knew firsthand about the dangers of pride. Pride had caused him to stumble and fall into error and denial. He was chastened before he was humbled and restored. Proud people defy God and his sovereign authority. They rebel against him and his commands. Therefore, God opposes them or he sets himself against them. Oh, if they only understood what it means for sinners to fall in the, into the hands of an angry God. If only they grasped his fiery wrath and sure judgment. In contrast, Peter says that those who humble themselves under God's mighty hand will be exalted by God. We do this by casting ourselves completely upon God's grace. We do this by humbling ourselves in true repentance from our sins. And we do this by refusing to trust in our flesh and trust God instead. Jesus' humility gives us a striking example. He is God. Yet, in humility, he laid aside his deity to embrace human flesh, to live as our example and our Savior. He willingly went to the cross to die, defeating sin and death forever, and was raised to life on the third day to give every believer new, abundant, and eternal life. God then exalted him in glory where he remains today. His glory gives us the hope of eternal glory, a hope so great and so sure that it should impact how we live our earthly lives. God calls us to live holy lives, growing more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. God calls
calls us to live sacrificial lives, humbly willing to go wherever he sends us and to do whatever he commands us. One thing he does not call us to be is anxious. In verse 7, Peter exhorts his readers to cast their anxiety on God. Even as persecution and suffering heated up, they were not to fret or worry. Peter finishes his thought about humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand by reminding us that we are invited to cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us. God has his sights firmly fixed on every believer. In fact, Isaiah 40, 11 says that he carries us close to his heart. Therefore, he can be trusted with every care, every worry, every heartache, every trial, and every trace of our suffering. Which anxieties or worries do you need to cast upon the God who cares for you? Carry everything to God's throne of grace, my friend. Everything. He sees you. He knows you. He cares for you. And he loves you with an eternal and extravagant love. RSVP yes to his invitation to bring your burdens to him and lay them down. Refuse to pick them back up. God so intimately knows you that he knows exactly how to pray for you, strengthen you, and sustain you. Follow Jesus' example of intimacy with his Father and draw near in prayer more often, seeking God's strength, comfort, peace, and direction. Then there will be zero need to ever be anxious. Instead, keep your focus on the hope of eternal glory. It will direct your energies towards serving God with the humble willingness that glorifies Him. This gives us our first truth. The hope of eternal glory motivates us to be humble, willing servants of God. Which desires of your flesh need to be mortified to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God? What needs to change in your way of thinking and acting to pursue Christ-like humility? How might you more eagerly and willingly take care of the needs of your church family? And how does or could the hope of an unfading crown of glory impact your day-to-day -day life. Your hope of eternal glory is guaranteed by the one who is enough 
Jesus is your enough right now. He is your refuge, your mighty, impenetrable strength, and your very present, well-proved help when you are in trouble. How trustworthy and faithful is he. Your flesh is not needed. Crucify it. Mortify it. Kill it. When the world falls down around you, King Jesus is unmoved from his sovereign throne in his holy habitation. He remains in your midst so you are not moved. Live like it. Indeed, you, Christian, are established, rooted, and strong in him. You are glory-bound. The Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies, is with you. He is your fortress in whom you can hide. He alone can make war cease to the end of the earth, breaking bows and shattering spears and burning chariots with fire. You and I, we need only be still and know that he is God, the Almighty One who is and will always be exalted before the nations and in the earth. This is the God who is with us, in us, and for us. He is our stronghold, our refuge, our high tower, and our enough. Because he is our only reasonable response is to serve him humbly and willingly. The hope of eternal glory motivates us to be humble, willing servants of God. Next, Peter teaches us that God calls his people to a hopeful watchfulness. That is our next division, First Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 14. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46, Peter's dismal failure to watch and pray is recorded. He was there with Jesus, who had a soul full of sorrow, as he went to Gethsemane to pray the night before his crucifixion. He left Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, John and James, to keep watch. When he returned, he found them sleeping. He directs his rebuke at Peter, saying, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Still, Peter, John, and James could not stay awake. Jesus returned again to find them sleeping then went away for a third time to continue praying. This was a profound lesson for Peter, a lesson he learned the hard way and never forgot. He wanted to teach every believer the same lesson. So in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he urges his readers, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Peter exhorts believers to be self-controlled and alert for the devil's schemes. He calls him our adversary or the enemy. 
Now, it is interesting that he picks, uh, pictures Satan as a roaring lion. Normally, scripture uses the image of a lion to refer to the anointed one, Messiah, Jesus. He is the true lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion who is our prowling adversary is but a cheap imitation of Jesus, a counterfeit. He merely masquerades as an angel of light. In truth, he is the father of lies, the king of darkness, and the defeated enemy of our souls. He may be a roaring lion, but he is an imposter. Believers have the true lion, the lion of Judah, who is the triumphant king of kings and lord of lords on their side. Peter says we must resist the devil's schemes. Look at verse 9. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. To resist the devil and his schemes. We must first have a sober-minded view of who he is and what he is and is not capable of doing. First, know that Satan may roar as a lion, but he is a tethered lion. He can only do what God allows him to do. Second, know that on the cross, Jesus Christ already triumphed over Satan. He is a defeated foe. Ultimately, he will not win. Third, know that you have been equipped by the God of grace to fight against the devil. You have been equipped with the whole armor of God. Your shield of faith extinguishes the devil's flaming darts. The only danger you and I face is when we fail to resist. We fail to watch and pray. And we fail to put on or employ the whole armor of God. Because Jesus resisted the temptations of the devil, all who are in Christ can resist his temptations. Jesus' Jesus's example shows us that we must stay rooted in God's Word. It is the sword of the Spirit and our best offensive weapon against the devil's lies and assaults. By grace, God equips us with spiritual weapons for spiritual warfare. This is how we stand firm in the faith. We know what we believe, and we know whom we believe in, and he is fully trustworthy. Peter adds that we are not alone in our suffering. We have the comfort of knowing that our Christian brothers and sisters throughout the world experience the same kinds of suffering. This is important to know. This keeps our focus on others, not self. Satan wants us to believe that we suffer more uniquely and more deeply than anyone else so that we will get so wrapped up in self-pity that we are useless in the kingdom of God. But it is not true. Jesus suffered 
in the same ways that we do. Then he suffered in ways that we cannot fathom. Fellow believers suffer. Throughout the ages, some have suffered in ways that you and I are unable to fathom. Yet, they and every believer also possess the hope of eternal glory. That is what should impact how we live our earthly lives, even when we suffer. Then, there is the beauty of the promise in verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Four glorious verbs describe the divine action that the God of grace will personally take for his beloved children to ensure their safe arrival on heaven's shore. The verb restore is literally to mend. God will mend us. He will make us whole, make us all he intended us to be before mankind fell into sin. He will confirm us. This word comes from two Latin words, con, which means together, and firm, which means to strengthen. This means that God will work together with us to cause us to stand strong on our own two feet. Commentator David Helm says that the last two verbs are architectural by nature, terms that echo Peter's earlier teaching that we are being built up into a spiritual house of God. When we arrive at heaven's gate, we will be his dwelling. Now I want you to put your name after each glorious verb. After you have suffered a little while, God himself will restore you, Chantel. Confirm you, Caroline. Strengthen you, Jenny. And establish you, Mary so that you stand firm and steadfast in the faith, a pure and holy dwelling place for the Lord God Almighty. Keep your eyes fixed on the hope of your eternal glory. For the believer, suffering is temporary, limited. Glory is eternal, and it awaits you, my friend. No matter what happens here on earth, you and I have the sure hope of eternal glory. Let that hope impact how you live your earthly life. Submit to God's will to live and to serve him for his glory and your own. And remember to keep watch and pray against all worldly and fleshly temptations as well as the devil's assaults. Then join Peter in praising the one who is worthy of all our praise. Verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. David Helm is helpful again. He says, what else could possibly come from the lips of those who have received so much? 
in all our sufferings, in all our trials, his eternal glory is manifest, his grace is truly known, and his dominion will carry on forever. The dominion of God will never be extinguished. It will never be snuffed out. Throughout the centuries, Christians have understood their sufferings in light of what is being accomplished for his eternal dominion. Praise God. He is from everlasting to everlasting, the great, mighty, and oh-so-personal Father God. In verses 12 through 14, Peter offers his final exhortations to his fellow suffering saints, and his words continue to highlight the true grace of God. The true grace referred to here is the mysterious joining of suffering to eternal glory. This is a believer's hope. In this, Peter exhorts us to stand firm. Preach the truth of this grace to yourself, then to each one that God places in your path. Never stop living a gospel-centered life to the praise of God's glory. Peter's final words of this epistle are filled with the love and peace that should define the body of Christ. In verse 14, he says, Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. The kiss of love, or as the Apostle Paul called it, a holy kiss, was a standard form of greeting or farewell at that time. Christians of his day were from every walk of life in a very divided culture. To see a Christian master plant the kiss of love on his Christian slave would truly declare the love that God places in the hearts of his people. Peter follows this kiss with the same word of peace which opened his letter. Suffering and persecuted people needed a tangible knowledge of God's peace. It is a peace which is a gift of grace from God's hand, and it is a peace which cannot be shaken, even by the most intense suffering. The Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, he lives in us. He reigns over us. We need only be still and know that he is God and that he is enough. Peter never wanted his readers to forget about these most amazing gifts of grace from God. These gifts help us endure, persevere, and stand firm in the truth of God's grace. Grace is so vital to the life of a believer that Peter uses the word grace in every chapter of his letter. Grace is linked to the themes of suffering, glory, and hope that permeates Peter's letter. Believers who depend on God's grace live well to suffer well and die well. They turn trials into triumphs. And as Warren Wearsby says, whatever begins with God's grace always leads to glory. Conversely, the hope of eternal glory motivates us to stand firm in God's grace. That is our second truth. 
the hope of eternal glory motivates us to stand firm in God's grace. What steps could you take to maintain your hope of eternal glory, even in a season of suffering? What is your battle plan for resisting the enemy and standing firm in the faith? And how might you become a receptacle as well as a dispenser of God's grace? John Wesley's mother, Susanna, was well acquainted with suffering. Her father was a Puritan minister who was scandalously ejected from the Church of England. She married Samuel Wesley at age 19 and gave birth to 19 children, 11 of whom she buried. Samuel was often absent and was imprisoned twice for financial negligence. The Wesley home burned down twice, and after the second fire, the children were sent off to live in different homes while it was repaired. Through it all, Susanna stood firm in her faith through a fiercely guarded prayer and devotional life. So while Susanna knew by personal experience what it means to suffer, she lived for the eternal glory of the coming kingdom of God. The God-glorifying service of her two sons, John and Charles, testified to the impact of her earthly life. When she died at the age of 73, her tombstone was inscribed with the following words, Ensure and certain hope to rise and claim her mansion in the skies. A Christian here her flesh laid down, the cross exchanging for a crown. Susanna's sure and certain hope is the hope of every believer. It is a living hope, and I know so hope. The cross of suffering we bear in this life will one day, my friends, be exchanged for an unfading crown of glory. Let the hope of eternal glory motivate you to stand firm in God's grace. At the end, of your life? Will people say you lived well? Are you suffering well? Are you prepared to die well? The hope of your eternal glory must impact your earthly living. Contemplate the end of your earthly journey. What will it be like for you to stand face to face? with God. If you leave such a vital matter until the very end of life, it will unnecessarily burden your dying process with uncertainty and anxiety. This is why John Wesley admonished his followers. You have no time to lose. See that you redeem every moment that remains. Remove everything out of the way, be it ever so small that might any ways obstruct your lowliness and meekness, your seriousness of spirit, your single intention to glorify God in all your thoughts and words and actions. 
Those who fully invest their lives in the pursuit of glorifying God have nothing to fear from death. Rather, death becomes yet another opportunity for the grace of God to be made manifest. God's grace alone enables believers to live well, suffer well, and die well. Decide today that the hope of your eternal glory will impact your earthly living. To that end, I leave you with a Spurgeon-inspired benediction. May you, my friends, grow in grace, for life is proven by growth. May you march like pilgrims toward heaven, singing all the way. May your prayer be nearer, my God, to thee. May your motto be higher, higher, higher. And may the song of your heart grow louder, clearer, more full of heaven. Upward, my sisters, upward. Sing, soar until you are dissolved in glory. That is how you live well to die well. Please pray with me. Oh, sovereign Lord. You command us to be strong and courageous. You command us to not be frightened or dismayed. We know that we cannot do this apart from you and your amazing grace. Oh God, you have declared that you are always with us. You sovereignly reign over everything that happens or does not happen. This is especially true about our suffering. Remind us that you are the all-sufficient God. Move us to walk in complete obedience to your will, living to the praise of your glory this day and every day. May we keep the hope of our eternal glory and yours fixed in our sights until we reach our heavenly home. This we ask in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.